Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Today's story is one of those big ones. One that everyone knows and almost everyone has an opinion about. On October 24th, 1972, a man was born who would find himself thrust into the spotlight for a gruesome murder. A murder that, to this very day, he is fighting to prove he did not commit. A man who almost everyone in the world thinks is guilty. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Scott Lee Peterson was born on October 24, 1972, in San Diego, California, to parents who both owned local businesses while raising their six children, with all but Scott coming from previous relationships. Pretty early on, Scott showed a real aptitude for the game of golf and had big dreams of becoming a professional golfer like fellow teammate Phil Michelson. By the end of high school, it seemed like he was well on his way cementing his place as one of the top junior golfers in all of San Diego and earning a partial golf scholarship to Arizona State University. Unfortunately, the competition between him and PGA golfer Phil Michelson became too much and Scott, discouraged, decided on a different route in life. At least that was his story. According to the father of another Arizona State golfer, Scott was kicked off the team for taking his son out drinking, resulting in the boy, who was the number one junior golfer in the country, to be so hungover it affected his performance. The father complained that Scott's presence on the team affected his son, and he was kicked off. Either way, Scott ended up transferring to Cuesta College and then later to California Polytechnic, where professors described him as the model student. While attending Cal Poly, Scott began work at a restaurant in Morro Bay where he met and fell in love with a girl named Lacey Denise Roca. Lacey, born on May 4th, 1975, was a hardworking girl from the day she was born. Working on the farm from a young age, Lacey grew a deep appreciation for gardening that would later influence her chosen major, ornamental horticulture. The former cheerleader who visited a friend who worked at the same restaurant Scott did made the first move on the handsome man, giving him her phone number and immediately after meeting him, 
telling her mother that she met the man she was going to marry. The pair soon started dating, and as they grew more serious, Scott decided to set aside his aspirations of playing professional golf in favor of a business career. After two years of dating, moving in together, and Lacey's graduation, Scott and Lacey Peterson married in 1997. Scott finished out his senior year while Lacey began working in nearby Prunedale. On the outside, they were the beautiful all-American couple. But what no one knew, not even poor Lacey, was that Scott had already started at least two extramarital affairs before the ink on his marriage certificate was even dry. In June of 1998, Scott graduated with a degree in agricultural business, and together, the couple opened up a sports bar in San Luis Obispo called The Shack, which they ran successfully until they sold it in 2000, at which time the pair moved to Lacey's hometown of Modesto to start a family. By October of 2000, the couple was in an upscale three-bedroom bungalow. Lacey took a part-time job as a substitute teacher, and Scott got a job at a newly founded subsidiary of a European fertilization company while they worked enthusiastically to create the perfect home and the perfect family. Lacey, described as the ideal housewife, excitedly announced to everyone in 2002 that she was finally pregnant with the couple's first child. Everything was going according to plan. That was until November of 2002 when Scott met a Fresno massage therapist named Amber Frey, and he told her that he was a single man. A simple lie that would have deadly consequences. On December 23, 2002, Scott and Lacey, who was either seven and a half or eight and a half months pregnant, depending on the source, went to the salon where her sister worked to get their monthly haircuts. The pair chatted about life, and at some point, Scott offered to pick up a fruit basket that was ordered for the girl's grandfather as a Christmas gift, claiming he would be playing golf at a nearby course on Christmas Eve day. After a phone call with her mother at around 8.30 p.m. that same day, Lacey Peterson seemed to disappear off the face of the earth. According to Scott Peterson, he last saw his wife at around 9.30 a.m. on December 24th, when he left to go fishing at the Berkeley Marina. He said she was watching television, prepared to get everything squared away for Christmas Eve, and was about to take their dog to a nearby park for a quick walk. A golden retriever named Mackenzie, who was found roaming the area by a neighbor, and returned to their backyard just after 10 a.m., about an hour and a half later, another neighbor found Mackenzie wandering with a muddy leash and, again, returned her to the Petersons' backyard. When Scott returned from his fishing trip that afternoon, the house was empty. Mackenzie was still in the backyard and Lacey's Land Rover was still in the driveway. After taking a shower to wash off the water from fishing, Lacey was reported missing. There are two versions of how that phone call to police took place. According to ABC News, Scott himself placed the call and reported Lacey missing from their Modesto home. But, according to the New York Post, Scott waited until 5.15 p.m., at which point he called his mother-in-law and, a half an hour later, Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, called the police. Regardless of who made the call, the police arrived at the Peterson home that night only to find a meticulously set table ready for Christmas Eve dinner, a phone book open to a full-page ad for a defense lawyer, and Lacey's keys, wallet, and sunglasses still in her purse, which was stashed away in the closet. 
Worried for the expectant mother, police started to work under the suspicion that something terrible had happened to Lacey Peterson, which is why they found it incredibly odd that her loving husband seemed to be handling the disappearance with an extreme sense of calm. As police and firefighters started to carry out a massive search for Lacey, which included mounted police, bicycles, canine units, helicopters, and water rescue units, detectives started questioning Scott the very night his wife went missing. During this questioning, he changed his story from going golfing that morning to going fishing in Berkeley. And when police checked her messages, they found one from Scott at around 2.15 saying, Hey, beautiful, it's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley. Some things weren't adding up, and as the case spread nationwide, a press conference was held in which the lead detective classified the case as one involving foul play. Commenting on how out of character it was for Lacey to leave without telling anyone, especially on a holiday. About 900 people grouped together to search for Lacey in the first two days of her disappearance, and a reward for 25000 was quickly increased to 250000 and later to $500,000. Ribbons littered the streets, flyers circulated, and a website dedicated to her safe return was launched, with over 1,500 volunteers signing up to distribute information and aid in the search. Everyone wanted to know what happened to not just Lacey Peterson, but to the unborn baby boy she was carrying in her stomach, a boy they were calling Connor. While detectives worked to find Lacey, they couldn't help but notice how Scott seemed to be handling the whole situation. According to the lead detective, quote, I suspected Scott when I first met him. Didn't mean he did it, but I was a little bit thrown off by his calm, cool demeanor and his lack of questioning. He wasn't, will you call me back? Can I have one of your cards? What are you guys doing now? Of course, they didn't immediately announce their suspicions especially because, according to all of Lacey's friends and family, Scott was the perfect husband who couldn't possibly have anything to do with her disappearance. So, they kept their digging private, and on July 17, 2003, things took a sudden turn when police found out that not only had Scott been unfaithful in the beginning of their marriage, but that he was in the middle of an affair when his wife went missing. And they heard it all from the mouth of Amber Frey his mistress, who approached the police saying that while he told her he was single when they first met, she started to suspect he was married and decided to confront him on December 9th. His response? That he was a married man, but had lost his wife and this was his first holiday he would be spending as a widow. 14 days before Lacey Peterson went missing. Lacey's family held a press conference on January 24th and withdrew all of their previous support of their son-in-law. Amber Frey, wanting to help in any way she could, allowed detectives to secretly record her subsequent phone calls with Scott in hopes that maybe he would confess. The recordings, which were later made public, revealed that in the days after Lacey went missing, Scott told Amber that he traveled to Paris to celebrate the holiday with some new companions. In reality, he made one of those calls while standing in the middle of the New Year's Eve candlelight vigil for his missing wife. Everyone started to fear the worst, and all their suspicions were confirmed when on April 13, 2003, 
a couple walking their dog found the decomposing but well-preserved body of a late-term male fetus in a marshy area of the San Francisco Bay, just north of Berkeley. His umbilical cord was still attached and, according to an anonymous source at the Associated Press, a loop of nylon tape was found around his neck and a cut to his body. One day later, the torso of a recently pregnant woman was found at that same park, just one mile away from where the baby's body was found. She was decomposed to the point of being unrecognizable, with all of her internal organs, except for her uterus, missing. DNA results a few days later confirmed that the bodies were that of Lacey Peterson and her unborn son, Connor. Though their exact time and cause of death could not be determined, Lacey suffered from two cracked ribs and, because of the way her organs had been removed, Connor's body was expelled from Lacey's body as she decomposed, though it was never determined if he was alive or not when this happened. It was all horrific any way you looked at it. Desperate to catch the man responsible for their gruesome deaths, police placed a tracker on Scott's car, fearing he would try and cross the Mexican border, and forensic searches were done inside the Peterson home. Everything was searched. Scott's boat, his truck, toolboxes, tackle boxes, and a warehouse. But nothing other than some hairs found on Scott's fishing pliers that matched Lacey's was found. Regardless, police arrested Scott Peterson on April 18, 2003, near the La Jolla Golf Course. Scott, who had dyed his naturally dark brown hair blonde, had his car stuffed with survival gear, camping equipment, changes of clothes, and four cell phones, had about $15,000 of cash on him, 12 Viagra tablets, and his brother's driver's license, in addition to his own. According to Scott's father, the media had forced Scott to live out of his car but police were reasonably sure they had just caught him before he could make his escape. A few days later, Scott was arraigned and charged with two felony counts of murder with premeditation and special circumstances. He pleaded not guilty, and bail was set at $1 million. After changing the venue due to the increasing hostility in Modesto, Scott's trial started on June 1st, 2004, and was followed very closely by the media and almost everyone else on the planet. The defense's argument was simple. They claimed that while Scott Peterson was a cad who cheated on his pregnant wife, that in no way made him a murderer, while the prosecution claimed that their increasing debt and his desire to be single once again was his motive. The prosecution theorized that Scott weighed down Lacey's body with cement anchors and threw her into the San Francisco Bay. However, these anchors were never found, and the defense argued that the investigation into Lacey's disappearance was not thorough enough, claiming correctly that they never checked the alibi of a sex worker who was accused of stealing checks from the Peterson's mailbox, to which the police argued back that she was never a suspect because the checks were stolen after Lacey went missing. Amber Frey, who was represented by Gloria Allred, testified for the prosecution everything she knew about Scott and the case relied heavily on Scott's altered appearance, the fact that he was about to flee the state, and the one piece of forensic evidence that they had, the hair found on Scott's fishing pliers, arguing that there was no logical way her hair would end up there unless it was used when Scott dumped her body into the bay. They also argued that when Scott added two porn stations to their cable service plan just days after her disappearance, made plans to sell the home they shared, 
and traded her Land Rover for a pickup truck, it indicated that he knew she wasn't going to come home. The defense claimed that it was all circumstantial and continued to pursue arguments about police competency. During the trial, there was supposed to be testimony from a fertility specialist named Charles Marsh, who, according to the defense, could single-handedly exonerate Scott Peterson by showing Lacey's fetus died a week after the prosecution claimed, fitting in the defense's theory that Lacey was kidnapped and held until she gave birth, at which point she was murdered and dumped in the bay. But under cross-examination, Charles admitted to basing his findings off an anecdote from one of Lacey's friends that she had taken a home pregnancy test on June 9th, 2002 not on any scientific findings. When the prosecution pointed out that none of her medical records indicated that June 9th date and the fact that the fetus was not full term, he became flustered, confused, and asked the prosecution to cut him some slack. On November 12th, 2004, a jury convicted Scott Peterson of two counts of murder, first degree for Lacey and second degree for Connor. He was later sentenced to death by lethal injection and ordered to pay $10,000 for Lacey's funeral, claiming his crimes were cruel, uncaring, heartless, and callous. On October 21, 2005, a judge ruled that Lacey's $250,000 insurance policy would be rewarded to her mother. On July 5, 2012, Scott's automatic appeal was filed with the California Supreme Court, and the very next day... His attorney filed a 423-page appeal stating that the publicity surrounding the case, incorrect evidentiary rulings, and other mistakes deprived Scott of a fair trial. Responses went back and forth, and in November of 2015, the defense filed a habeas corpus petition claiming that one of the jurors lied on her application and that they had evidence that a neighbor saw Lacey alive after Scott had left the house. On August 10th, 2017, the state attorney general responded by filing a 150-page document contesting the notions and disputing their claims, stating the appeal ignored the overwhelming evidence that Scott murdered Lacey. Again, responses went back and forth, and on June 2nd, 2020, the California Supreme Court heard arguments on Scott's appeal. They closed their arguments on August 24th, 2020, and in a 7-0 vote, upheld Scott's conviction, but decided to overturn his death sentence because his trial judge, Albert DeLucci, who died in 2008, had dismissed jurors who opposed capital punishment without asking if they could put those views aside. The ruling came as a blow to Lacey's family, reigniting the pain they felt almost 20 years ago. As of right now, Scott is still working towards a new trial on the grounds that a juror lied about her experience with domestic violence. It was ruled in October of 2020 that the lower court should take a second look at his case. So it is likely a new trial in the Lacey Peterson case could happen in the very near future. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 25th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.